Good morning. The song we sang, um, not that last song, but the previous song, Beauty, Truth, and Goodness, is one that I wrote a couple of years ago. And beauty, truth, and goodness are known as the transcendentals. They are best described as the fullness of who God is and also how we see God in this world. And then they're also how we relate to and how we portray God to the world. They're all three needed, and yet each one of us has a bent towards one of them. And I want to look at them for a second. Truth, truth is the way of intellect or of knowledge. It's the way of words. Beauty... Beauty is the way of the heart or of emotion. It's the way of aesthetics or art. And then goodness. Goodness is the way of the will or of right action. It's the way of social justice. So as Stan and I were talking yesterday, we realized that he, could you guess it, is a truth person, right? He's the one with the words. I am more of a goodness person, and neither is right or wrong, and each one of us, again, have these bents as well, but I think the goal would be that we as individuals would become to reflect all three of these, that we as a church would become, uh, become to reflect all three of these, and also to add in, to also make room for the contemplative, which is the way of stillness as well. And I bring that up this morning, not just to talk about the song, even though I think the song and all the songs this morning go right to the heart of the message, but I bring that up to sort of name and own my bent this morning and be able to say to you that my bent is not the whole, but it is the perspective from which I come. So as we continue our series today of original virtue, we're talking about the virtues of justice and of mercy. And I also want to let you know that we are circling for a landing with this series. Next week will be the final week, and Stan will preach on the virtues of hope and peace. And we feel very positive that we have left out some of the great virtues, but we also are thankful that we've been able to go over so many of the characteristics of God and ourselves this summer. And I think it will do us well, and we're going to work on this week putting together a paper of all of the virtues that we've gone over and to define them and also write the simple practices that you and I can think about in ways to bring these virtues out of ourselves, to bring these to the forefront of our minds and our hearts always. Now to justice and mercy. I spent last weekend in North Carolina at the Wild Goose Festival, and a lot of you were there and went as well. The Wild Goose Festival is a festival that centers around justice, mostly on social justice, my bent. It also focuses on art and spirituality. And this year's theme was Blessed Are the Peacemakers. It's a beautiful weekend in a serene setting by a river in North Carolina. And I would love for us to take about 100 of us Grace Pointers next year because these are our people. And their challenge and their encouragement they gave, that they gave to us as individuals and to our churches and to our societies, it's the very heartbeat and passion of who we are here at Grace Point. So I had the privilege last Sunday morning to sit under the teaching of Reverend Tracy Blackman. And I was quickly and mildly became obsessed with this woman. I researched her all week, looked up all her YouTube videos and found her on Twitter and, and maybe stalked her, but that's okay. I was researching her. <laughs> I was so moved by her, and I'm hoping that when the time is right that she can come and preach to us here at Grace Point because I think it will do us all well to sit under this teaching of this servant of God. I say all of that to say that her words and her insights are all throughout my message today. Also are the words of theologian Marcus Borg, who is a writer, and he's written many books, but in my top five books probably on theology is a book called Reading the Bible Again for the First Time by Marcus Borg, and I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. So I wanted to give honor to whom honor is due this morning as we begin. 
So when you think about justice and mercy, I wonder what comes to your mind. Justice, by definition, is just behavior or just treatment. It is fairness. And then mercy, mercy by definition, is compassion. It is forbearance shown, especially to someone who offends you. Now, the biblical definition of these words is a little bit more nuanced. Justice in Scripture can best be described as righteousness, to deal with things well. Justice is then to have your rights, and then also justice is to be fair with others. Mercy in Scripture, mercy means kindness and goodness and faithfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up with the definition of God's justice being best understood as God's deserved punishment for our sins. God's justice was God's judgment. And then the opposite of that was God's mercy. And by definition for me growing up, God's mercy was God's loving forgiveness of us in spite of us. And I'll also add that we were not given God's judgment but God's mercy because of the saving work of Jesus. Now, I'm finding more and more when, um, as I've grown in my spirituality and as I come back to Scripture, come back to an idea that I think I already understand, that I have to name what I know or what I have learned about these ideas, such as justice and mercy, before I start researching it. Otherwise, I'm bringing in my preconceived notions to the work, and sometimes that can get in the way of what the actual facts are. That can get in the way of what the truth is. That can get in the way of what the Spirit wants to awaken in me or in us today. And so I want to name this again for myself and for some of you, that we thought justice was understood as God's deserved punishment for our sins and that mercy was God's loving forgiveness of us in spite of us. They were presented at opposites. Justice and mercy were opposites. And with that said in name, now we come back to the text. We come back to the ideas and to the virtues with fresh eyes and with fresh ears. Because so much, so much of us understanding what these virtues are inside of us is first, as best we can, understanding what these virtues are and these characteristics are inside of God. Abraham Heschel calls this a fellowship with the feelings of God, a sympathy with the divine pathos. Now, sympathy comes from the original word pathos, meaning strong feeling, and then the prefix sim means with. So for Heschel, a sympathy with the divine pathos means that we can feel the feelings of God. Now, we know that in Scripture, both Jesus and the prophets, they felt the feelings of God. Their passion was hopefully God's passion, and it came out of knowing God. It came out of their relationship with God, and that is our call as well. God has a dream for this world, and it is a dream of justice and mercy. It is a dream of peace. And Marcus Borg points out that most often in the Bible, the opposite of God's justice is not God's mercy. The opposite of God's justice is human injustice. So it is not whether or not the mercy of God will supersede the justice of God in the final judgment. No, it is will we allow justice and mercy to shape our individual lives and our societies in which we live right here and now. And by that, by that thought, I'm reminded once again that we are truly together in this. Now, I want to talk about mercy first because I think mercy is somewhat a little bit more the easier one to approach. Mercy is goodness. Mercy is kindness. It's faithfulness towards ourselves and then also towards others who don't extend those same things to us. 
Psalm 23, 6, most of us are familiar with it. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I think for many of us, that's the desire of our hearts, that goodness and mercy should follow us, that we would receive those things when we don't act in the way that we should, when we make mistakes, when we speak poorly, we want mercy for ourselves. But the bigger question I think for us today is whether or not we show and extend mercy to others. Do we hold back punishment when someone else deserves it? Now, punishment sounds strong, right? I don't think most of us walk around ready to punish someone. We don't think that our words and our actions carry punishment necessarily. But I think if we would understand that showing mercy is when we choose to withhold the warranted response in situations, but then we would choose to still respond, but always respond with kindness and with compassion. That's mercy. For example, Last week on Facebook, I always have these great social media stories. Last week on Facebook, I posted a video from the Timothy's Gift Benefit concert of us singing Higher Ground. We ended the whole concert with Stevie Wonder's big hit. And most of you were there, a lot of you were there, and a lot of you maybe have witnessed the comments on my page because of this. So I have to tell you that I, um, in my previous life, um, (laughs) I was a fairly successful Christian artist. And so most of the people um, that follow me on my social media pages, they come from a very conventional evangelical tradition and background. And so as I've taken my spiritual journey into what I consider now newer and broader spaces, and I've landed in very different places on many issues, but also on grand concepts like God and humanity, Jesus and salvation, a lot of those people are shocked at where I've landed. And they uh, make commentary because of it. And it can be quite entertaining at times. Um, And I will say that some are very kind, some are very loving, and they literally just want to know, as a Christian, how did you get there? And then some really wonderful dialogue ensues. And then others, others, well. So this one man on this page, this post of the Higher Ground video, he typed in quickly, he said, this is typical, the church has become an entertainment industry that chases the culture. And I responded quickly, because I'm not always great on Facebook, I responded quickly, (laughs) I admit that before God and y'all, okay, let's just be honest. I responded quickly and I said, sir, this was not a church service, this was a benefit concert for a prison outreach, but thank you for your judgment. I'm not saying you should do that, okay? (laughs) I needed to respond, though. And then he quickly responded with something else very unkind. And so I decided I'm going to block this man because I've realized that on our social media pages and in real life, that we don't need to have people in our social circles who are not open for dialogue, who are not open for hearing and for listening. If people are flat out rude, then block them in Jesus' name, okay? So he sent me a private message because he could no longer comment on my page. And he sent me a private message, which at least it was private. And he said, good riddance, scumbag. I've been called a lot of things in my life, but scumbag, that was a first, especially for posting a Stevie Wonder video. So my question is then, what does mercy look like in this real life situation? Well, it didn't look like me having to ignore him. It didn't look like me not responding. Mercy is not being a doormat. 
See, we've not been taught that well enough in this life. Mercy is, though. Some of us have been taught mercy so poorly that mercy has led to codependence. Some of us have forgotten who we are as the beloved. We've forgotten who we are and that we have a right to speak up for ourselves. See, being walked on or being talked down to and taking it with no response, that is not what mercy requires. Mercy does require me to, if anything, imagine what this man's life has been like. Imagine what brought him and led him to speak out in such an ugly and judgmental way. And for me to extend to him, if only in my heart, to extend to him kindness and love. Mercy is not to retaliate with ugliness or meet him or them at their current level. Let's look at this scripture in Matthew 5, 39. But I tell you not to try to get even with a person who has done something to you. When someone slaps your right cheek, turn and let that person slap your other cheek. Now that analogy, that is not a call for us to be passive in a situation. See, it's very active when you give someone your other cheek. Passivity runs away from a situation while choosing to give mercy, being active and giving them the other cheek, that's holding them accountable for their words. Now, every situation needs to be weighted on its own merit. And also this idea of merciful, again, if not fully understood, it has led some people to stay in some very abusive situations. And that is not what mercy's call us to. The ultimate act of mercy, it was Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. He deeply believed that at their core, they didn't know what they were doing. And so forgive, if only in your hearts. It doesn't mean that we need to stay in situations. It doesn't mean that we don't need to respond or that we always need to respond. It does mean that we always need to extend forgiveness or kindness or love. At the heart of mercy is understanding and hope. My response to this man on Facebook is driven by my conviction that he has the ability to actually be better than that. He does. My place in his life, however long or short it may be, is to provide an opportunity for the better angels of his nature to come out. In the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, he was doing a nonviolent resistance. And he called the white people in his life and in this world that stood for segregation, those that stood against the equality that he was fighting for, he called them his sick white brothers and sisters. Now, by calling them sick, he was extending them mercy. By calling them sick, he was grading them on a curve. He believed that they were indeed products of a system too. They were products of a system too. See, mercy is the extension of a very hopeful theology that people can always be better than their worst. Let's look at this quote by Stephen Covey. He says this, before you go to war with your enemy, find the place where they weep and watch them there. You may not want to war with them. You may not want to war with them. One of the greatest ways to hold people accountable as far as justice is concerned is with mercy. And now with this idea of realizing, as Martin Luther King did, that there are systems in place in our world that cause suffering, that brings us back to the idea of justice. And hopefully we will see how justice and mercy, that they go hand in hand. Justice is arguably the chief cry of Scripture. 
Again, today, I'm focusing on the macro idea of justice, the scriptural idea of social justice, and how our virtue then is called into action in this life. The idea of things being fair or unfair, that's embedded into the fabric of our lives. Haven, my daughter, cried out unfair at Disney World when she was not tall enough to ride the roller coaster that Hutch was tall enough to ride. Hutch cried out, unfair, when Haven got two birthday parties because it happened that on her actual birthday and the day of one of her parties, mommy was in jail. Well, I was on a prison tour, but nonetheless. <laughs> so Hutch cries out, unfair. See, we want fairness, understandably for ourselves. And then the virtue of justice in our lives, it means we need to want fairness for others as well. Our response, let's look at this. Our response to the universal love of God is justice. Our response to realizing that we are all the beloved children of God, it's justice. You see, over and over in scriptures, Jesus and the prophets, they are crying out for the fair treatment of people. Jesus said in Matthew 25, and I think we're going to put it up on the screens, he says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was naked, you gave me clothes to wear. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in jail, you visited me. And then the ones who please the Lord will ask, when did we give you something to eat or drink? When did we welcome you as a stranger or give clothes to you to wear or visit you while you were sick or in jail? And the king will answer, whenever you did it for any of my people, no matter how unimportant they seemed, you did it for me. See, Jesus tells us and Jesus asks us all the time, why the difference in treatment of people? If people are hungry, the virtue of justice rises up and you feed them. If people are in prison, you don't go to pardon them. You don't go to help them escape from their own consequences for their mistakes, but because of justice, you go and visit them. You humanize them. You remind them of their belovedness. That is a part of being just. Another New Testament reference is in 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he is warning them of eating the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. He's saying, he's warning them to do it, to not do it, excuse me, in an unworthy manner. And he wasn't talking about how they tasted the wine or how they broke the bread. He was talking about don't do it without discerning the body of Christ. Don't do it without paying attention to the community and their needs and making sure that everyone is okay. He brings this up because the betrayal of the body of Christ, it's the very betrayal of the egalitarian social reality of life in Christ because that was the kingdom of God. He was talking about the beloved community to which all of us are called. See, the more I study the Bible, the more I study scripture and I look into the voice of Jesus and the prophets in the Old Testament, when I reread Isaiah and reread Micah and Amos, I realize that I was taught that those prophets were mainly speaking of the coming of Jesus. But if you go back and you read again, what I realize is Jesus and the prophets, they are speaking out against inequality and the injustices in their world. And that moves me. That calls me and calls you to be reminded of the injustice that we see in our world as well. Jesus and the prophets' allegations, they were always directed to the elites of the time who were responsible for creating and for maintaining these structures of domination and exploitation. 
See, Israel was taken captive by Egypt, the dominating force, and then they were released. And hundreds of years later, as they wanted to rebuild their society, what they ended up doing was taking on the characteristics of Egypt again. And so the prophets spoke out. They spoke out so those in power were addressed because they had the power to actually change things. The prophets addressed the elites in power and with wealth at the top of the systems. They addressed them on behalf of the victims and in the name of God. They did so. They did so to generate hope. They did so to affirm their actual identity, not who they were acting like, but be reminded who you are. And they did so to create a new future for themselves. And that is what we are called to as well, to be a people of justice who generate hope who affirm the belovedness in all of humanity and who will create and be a part of creating and bringing about the very kingdom of God or the beloved community. There's always been a conflict with the domination systems of this world and the actual dream of God. But Marcus Borg puts, the dream of God is alive it is alive today. The prophets were passionate about justice and about God. And the biblical vision that we are given, although tainted much with human folly, with violence, and with sin, it is a vision of shalom. It is a vision of shalom. And shalom is a pervasive well-being that reflects the absence of oppression. It reflects the absence of anxiety. And it's characterized by health and wholeness by prosperity and security for all, for all. It is God's dream made manifest on earth as it is in heaven, but it belongs to everyone as much as it's everyone's responsibility. Pastor Tracy reminded me last week that sometimes we debate human suffering as if it's an idea and not a reality. Listen, sometimes we debate human suffering as if it's an idea and not a reality. We tend to forget that there are human beings behind this argument and these ideas and these causes. She said that suffering and loneliness and exclusion and discrimination, they were not ideas or political positions to Jesus. They were real, hurtful human experiences that were to be redeemed in every way possible. So when we go back and realize that when Christianity was formed, it was formed as a new way of life, and yet the Christian church quickly took on the ways of the Roman Empire and the culture in which they lived, the goal would have been and should have been that then and today that our spirituality will affect the ways of the world instead of the ways of the world affecting our spirituality and the empires in which we still live See, Christianity became too quickly about individualism. And individualism can be a beautiful thing, and it has been a beautiful thing, but it's only a part of it. Individualism gives value to the individual life. It gives importance to individual rights. It gives importance to our own choices, to our own opportunity. It shows us freedom, which is a gift from God. But individualism at times has um, focused too much on the micro it's focused too much on the self, and then we have forgotten about our equally needed focus to be on the macro or on the whole, to be on the systems in place that affect the lives of not only us, but of others as well. We can't ignore our connectedness to each other and to this earth. We can't get ourselves to a place of peace and forget that we need to get everybody else there as well. N.T. Wright says this quote. Let's look at it. 
justice, justice is what love looks like when it is facing the problems of its neighbors. That's what justice is. See, the social systems in place, they affect our lives. Racism and sexism are systems in place in this world that oppress and they negatively affect us. And we have to see that. We have to see that there is in systemic injustice and evil at work in our world, that there are unhealthy systems that lead to human suffering and what we need as opposed to healthy systems that lead to human flourishing. That's what we need. Benjamin Franklin said this, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Marcus Borg, he points out in scripture that there are major voices who protest and do so in the name of God on behalf of the victims. They protest on behalf of the slaves in Egypt. They protest on behalf of the exiles in Babylon. They protest on behalf of the exploited peasants in the monarchy society and again in the time of Jesus. They protest on behalf of the most vulnerable in their time, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the marginalized. And in the name of God, the figures of the Bible, they advocate for a very different life together. See, for Jesus, the kingdom of God was about God's justice in contrast to the systemic injustice of the kingdoms and domination systems of his world. The kingdom of God, the beloved community, was not about the life hereafter. It was about their earth right there. John Dominic Crossan made this memorable quote about this when he said, heaven is in great shape. It's earth. That's where the problems are. And that's what we need to be reminded of. The kingdom of God was about here and now. We see that God and God's prophets cared much about human suffering. God cared much about justice and still cares about fairness and equality for our world. And arguably the single biggest cause of unnecessary human suffering throughout history has been and is unjust social systems. And what would it mean for us to take that seriously? What would, us mean, what would it mean for us to take that very seriously? See, there is a widening gap between the rich and the poor. And it's talked about all throughout scriptures when you go back and reread. For example, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was talking. His audience at the time was a primarily peasant class, those that were on the margins of society. So when he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was articulating that the kingdoms of the world then that were in power, that treated you the way that they treat you, this is not what I intended this world to be. So let's do something about it. Let's pray the words and let's do something about it. And then when he goes on to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he was speaking of their actual need for bread and for sustenance because he was saying in God's kingdom, in the beloved community, it is about having enough bread for all people. And then if you go look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, again, you will see Jesus saying, blessed are you who are hungry for you will be filled Again, the kingdom of God was about justice and fairness for all. It was God's dream for the earth. And so we still today, we see this widening gap between the rich and the poor. Many of us went to see Rob Bell this past week on Wednesday night. 
And during his talk, he gave these statistical studies on how the wider the gap between rich and poor, the less the life expectancy is for all. Not just for the poor, not just for those on the bottom of society, for all people. Now, I don't want to get into politics this morning. I'm not talking about the democratic approach versus the Republican approach. But I do want to speak truth to power. There is a saying that says, when the tide rises, that all boats will rise. But I think what we actually see most often is when the tide rises, it sinks the canoes and it raises the yachts. Now, I have a yacht. Now, I don't really, or I would take us all on the boat this afternoon. But technically, in this analogy, I have a yacht. My husband, Ben, has a very good job. We are a double-income family. And I went and searched on this website yesterday, and if I put in our income, it puts us in the top 0.05% of the world. And guess what? Most of you are there, too. Most, are you, most of you are there, too. And so I want to speak and say there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There is nothing wrong with being in that percentage of class in the world. But, and hear me, we all need more wealthy people and more financially comfortable people that are also disenchanted with systemic injustice and that are committed to the kingdom of God. Amen? Yeah. Amen. So no matter what we make, no matter what we earn, we need to be a people of justice we need to be a people shaped by a vision of God's passion for this earth, a people of justice marked by enough bread for all, marked by freedom from debt and worry and sorrow. And of course, this is this ideal that we will never achieve. The kingdom of God always just exceeds, exceeds and um, is out of our grasp. But there are always more ways that we can keep responding and keep pushing forward to that place. So what does this justice actually look like? Pastor Tracy last week, she offered a comment during her message on Sunday morning that hit me smack dab in the heart. She said this, It would be easy to label the shooter of nine black bodies in Emmanuel AME as a demon who pulled the trigger and then refused to see the racist systems and societies who continue to load the gun. Who continue to load the gun. We need to figure out the problem with people, and we need to figure out the problem with the systems that we have in place. The oppressed are at the mercy of those of us who choose to decide whether or not we see them. We need to see people, all people. There is no pathway to the kingdom of God, no pathway to the beloved community that detours around justice. We are called to see the injustice in ourselves, as well as in others, because those things are obstacles in the way of shalom. And when we see those things, then we choose to make our way through. There's a beautiful old parable from the church that says that there was a town that was built just around the bend of a large river. And one day, some of the children were playing by the river, and they happened to see three bodies floating in the river. And so they went and they got their townspeople, and they quickly came to the river, and they pulled those bodies out. And one body was dead, and so they buried it. They honored it. One body was still sick, and so they took it to the hospital and cared for it. And one child was completely fine, and so they put it into a home, and they began to place it into a school and give it um, education. So from that day on, 
every, uh, a number of bodies began floating down the river, and every day, the good people of the town, they would pull them out, and they would tend to them, they would take the sick to the hospitals, place the children with families, and bury those who were dead. This went on for years. Each day brought its quota of bodies, and the townsfolk not only came to expect a number of bodies each day, but they also worked at developing more elaborate systems for picking out those in the river and tending to them. Some of the townsfolk became quite generous in tending to these bodies, and a few extraordinary ones gave up their jobs so that they could tend to this concern full-time. Full time. And the town itself became very, and developed a very uh, healthy pride for its generosity. However, during all those years, and despite all the generosity and effort, nobody thought to go up the river. Nobody thought to go beyond the bend that hid from sight to what was above them and find out why daily are those bodies floating down the river. See, we as a Christian community, we have been great about tending to bodies. We are great with charity work, and that is so needed in this world. We do well with philanthropy, which is actually tending to and going to those who are suffering. We've also done really well with social reform, which is creating and giving then to organizations who are doing that same care. But what we have not done well is with social transformation. It's the justice that steps in and says, we must change our societies. We must go up the river. We must see the structures that are only privileging some and causing suffering for others. See, the first two, privilege and social reform, they're about charity. And the third one is about justice. And charity is easy because it's never offensive. Justice, justice can be offensive. There's a great quote by Roman Catholic Bishop Dom Helder Camara from Brazil. He says, when I gave food to the poor, they called me a saint. And when I asked why there were so many poor, they called me a communist. So I believe we're called to do both. We are called to care for the victims, and we are called to say, why are there so many victims? Our lack of focus on all of this, though, is not something that we need to feel guilty about. I'm not shaming us this morning. We have not been bad or in need of forgiveness, but it is something that we need to do something about. We need to be about the macro, excuse me, the micro, the individual lives. We need to be about our need for justice and mercy. And then we also need to be about the macro on fixing and changing the systems that do need to be fixed. Our church, we as individuals, we are called to reshape the social landscape of our world. Christianity is not about creating an institution that stays inside its own walls. No. Christianity is about creating an institution that becomes salt and light and permeates the entire world. See, the early church, they immediately focused on this social justice issue. When you go home today or this week, I encourage you to read Acts 10 and 11. Acts 10 and 11. This is a story of social justice that starts by them already feeding the poor, and then they realize that it leads them to the inclusion of the Gentile people. They are asking questions like, can we forbid them the waters of baptism? They were asking questions like, are we supposed to fence in the Lord's table? 
At the very heart of the church from the beginning of time, people were asking these questions. And then in this story in Acts, Peter goes on to say, we cannot withhold the basic needs of food and shelter and opportunity. And even more so, it is terrible to try and withhold the very grace of God from people. So my question for you and for me today is who or what are we facing that's going through something that's a desperate time for someone? We had dinner with a couple earlier this week, and one of the guys expressed to Ben and I that his family was withholding love and contact from him because of the who he loves. So when I'm faced with that, do I give that man some of my time because he needs it and deserves it? Another woman called me just yesterday and said that she's facing a separation. Um, it's going to happen very soon, and they have kids in the family, and so they're going to take turns living in the home with the kids, but when she's not living in the home, she needs somewhere to stay. So Justice says to me, I need to open my home to her, and you do too. See, Justice isn't always comfortable it's not always the easiest thing to do, and yes, we need, and yet we need to be asking these questions. What can I do about this thing? And we're never going to fully eradicate suffering. But the true human life, it will forever be about the business of mitigating and diminishing suffering every day. So the question is, is my life doing that? The question is, is our church doing that? Is your Christianity and your spiritual journey being shaped by the culture around us? Or is the culture around us being shaped by our healthy Christianity and our healthy spirituality? Now, we can't answer all these questions today, and I can't answer these questions for you. Now, I do have an opinion. Yes, I do. And if you want to take me to coffee or we'll go over wine and I'll tell you it. But this platform... This pulpit is not for my opinion, and it's not for stands. It is for us to be able to provoke and prophetically stimulate you and I to start asking the right questions. Let's be people who alleviate suffering as soon as we see it. Let's pull some bodies from the river, and then let's be a people who also go upstream, figure out what's causing it in the first place, and do our best to stop it. Godly justice and mercy does not have to do with punishing wrongdoers. Godly justice and mercy does not have to do with pardoning our sins. It doesn't have to do with a God whose holiness is so big that it can't be in the presence of sin and evil. No, God's justice and God's mercy entered directly into the world of sin and evil and came to bring about transformation. God's justice and mercy was about healing the hurting and confronting those who were doing the hurting. Justice and mercy, they are two sides of the coin, coin of love in the face of wrong. They are not opposites. They are interdependent. Two sides of the coin of love in the face of wrong. I want us to look quickly at the prophet Amos. It's Amos 5, 21 through 24. Says, I, the Lord, hate and despise your religious celebrations and your times of worship. I won't accept your offerings or your animal sacrifices, not even your best, no more of your noisy songs. I won't listen when you play your hearts, but let justice and fairness flow like a river that never runs dry. 
If we think that it's all about this and all about this hour every week, then we're missing the point. Let justice and let mercy flow down like a river. The prophet Micah also summed it up very well and beautifully in Micah 6.8. He says this, He has shown you, O mortal, O human, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. If we have some priorities in this Christian life, these would be it. Walk humbly on your journey, all the while doing justice and extending mercy. Can you say amen? Amen.